Yeah, so uh, Moral, I feel like there's been a, a lot building up to this discussion because um, we've been exchanging in different ways and uh, tweets on Twitter, not just the English ones, uh, but the ones that are written in, I believe, Farsi. So, yes. Yep. And uh, obviously, I'm not a, a Farsi speaker, so I always get frustrated that I have to have Google translate translate it to English because I know the translation's imperfect and it's probably taking away from some of the associations that I would have if I uh, if I could speak Farsi. Um, but but I but I'm I'm pretty captivated by uh, the different things that you uh, communicate from a social and uh, political context. And, um, you know, uh, for the audience, Moral, we'll, we'll break into your background here. But I, I think what our conversation will rotate around um, is maybe we can get into some of the, the dimensions of your identity, as you put it. Um, being a child of revolution, growing up in a war zone, articulating a, a dissent and, uh, you know, participating in or having a proximity to uh, various social movements. Uh, and then something that I think is, um, is exciting, and, and uh, I hope to have more people like uh, yourself on my podcast, but, uh, but talking about like what it is like or w- like how it feels to be in the margins, as you put it, as a feminist in the, in the Middle Eastern context, uh, so, so I, I'm really excited to talk politics with you. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I love that we can kind of like balance out the Western, uh, and the Middle Eastern perspectives, you being in Canada, I'm in, uh, Colorado and the U S but, uh, I, I guess where we could start before we break into the discussion is maybe you could give like a, a base level of your background from maybe like a academic and professional context and then add into that any personal things you want to share and then we'll break into the conversation yeah sure so i mean i've I've, we've uh, i've heard you speak on in the clubhouse um and you know I've, i've been following some of your tweets um and then i noticed that you were liking some of my farsi tweets i'm like maybe he speaks uh you know persian or farsi and, uh, and we talked and you said, you know, but I, I was really interested. It was in, I was intrigued um, that um, you were actually reading them, trying to kind of build a bridge because this is something many of us uh, scholars, activists talk about it, that we need to build bridges um, between different cultures, different uh, backgrounds and even b- b- amongst um, academics and activists, uh, we need those bridges. So I, I was, you know, I was quite um, happy uh, to see that. And um, as for myself, it's um, um, I was born in Iran after the uh, I, after the revolution and between uh, and before the war with Iraq. So I was born in a war zone, essentially. Um, in southwestern Iran, bordering um, Iraq. And so I saw the war as a child. I saw the uh, revolution and that that I, I didn't 
I shouldn't say I saw the revolution. I was born in the aftermath of the revolution. I was, I saw the uh, new regime establish it, itself. And because uh, my uh, family and some of my extended family were involved, I mean, almost everybody was involved um, at that point, all the grown-ups. And I was growing it up in that environment, going to school and everything. It was hard not to be um struck by all the changes drastic changes that the society was going through i mean um and uh, i remember having these long conversations with my my dad about the changes that were happening how it was before not that he was advocating for what the country like how great the country was before or anything him and many people like him had fought and essentially revolted for a new system, for democracy, for uh, social justice, for uh, for an ind- independent um, Iran, and for better lives, essentially. Many of them had gone to uh, prison. They, they'd given many uh, years of their lives. And uh, they had many hopes and dreams. So I think when I look back at those times... One of the first things that I remember is the um, sense of hopelessness of those years. So once this regime takes over and essentially quashes all those hopes and dreams, not only that, but it also takes the country in certain respects. It takes the country back decades, definitely in terms of women's rights, definitely in terms of um, the rights of the ethnics and um, religious minorities um, and, you know, family law, many different um, issues. This theocracy takes place, starts eliminating the opponents, uh, including its own allies. Um, and there is rampant fear. People are afraid to speak up. We're taught at home what we can and we can't talk about at school because the slightest thing that you say wrong can cost a family member their lives. Mm. I remember a 12-year-old boy in our neighborhood was executed Mm. because he had a leaflet of one of the opposition groups. Mm. It's so hopelessness and disappointment utter disappointment was the color of that era Mm. um i mean we can talk sorry we can talk about that later but go on well so um and what what we're describing is basically like the the social and uh political environment that you grew up in uh when you were younger is that correct definitely yeah so that though seeing all of that kind of um, shaped my youth and it's shaped the way I see the world and I I started on this path as far back as I can remember to t- try to figure out what happened mm. you know why what happened to that revolution it's it's called the last great revolution of the century um, there was so much so much so many sacrifices and then i as i grew up and i learned more i i looked back and i realized where there were several movements Mm -hmm. um and each and every one in the past century have 
uh, ended in disappointment one way or another. <clears throat> and so what's the source, what's, what's, the, what's at the root of all the inequality and um, the injustice and the lack of freedoms that we're experiencing in countries like Iran? And why can't I live in my own homeland? I, I left Iran when I was about 10. Okay. Um, and so I tried to go on a different path and become an engineer and forget about the whole thing, but <laughs> this was really my calling. So graduate school um, was the answer. Just, you know, do research, just figure it out, try and um, look as far back as I could. Because as, as a child growing up, I loved literature. I read and I read just about anything that I could find, literature, philosophy, uh, the I mean, theology, um, anything and everything. Um, and I had this thirst to understand sort of this existential um, dilemma that I found myself and many like myself in. Mm -hmm. How would, um, so like in terms of research and, um, you know, like you said, you, you opted out of engineering, but where have your studies and research focused now? So I started my master's uh, around 2009, uh, where I started gathering the data, I would say, um, um, on um, the, uh, the green movement, the green political movement, which shouldn't really be confused with an environmental movement. In 2009, there was a presidential election in Iran in June. And uh, following that election, uh, there, there were mass uprisings because uh, many, uh, the two uh, candidates that lost in, and uh, millions of uh, people alleged that there was a fraud and uh, basically uh, the votes were rigged. And uh, President Ahmadinejad, who you might know, um, was not really the intended uh, candidate and okay. he didn't really win. So I started writing about that. I collected my data and I wrote about that movement. But that movement was quashed after, uh, you know, a couple of weeks. So I, I, I did my master's thesis on that. Um, okay. I mean, life happened um, on the um, discourse of the leaders of that movement, the two reformist leaders of the movement, mm -hmm. uh, and what impact um, their discourse had on, uh, on that movement. How did it steer the movement? So I... I took a um, Habermasian uh, framework, um, a lens, uh, if you will, and applied it uh, to understand the orientation of their speech. Was, it, was that orientation, um, was, was their discourse oriented towards un mutual understanding, building democracy and, you know, for the greater good, or was it strategic goal-oriented and um, not surprisingly, I, um, the uh, the data pointed to uh, the fact that it was actually strategic. It wasn't. There, there are a lot of discrepancies in their discourse, which is not unusual for and many is this, politicians. Is this discourse happening at the state level, or is this citizens that we're referring to? 
It's it's the two uh, presidential candidates, uh, namely Mir Hossein Musavi and uh, Mehdi Karoubi. I also included Mir Hossein Musavi's wife um, okay. because he was um, he oh, sorry she was the first woman who would um, accompany her husband in on the campaign trail. Oh wow! Um, and yeah, and so and. She was posing as, or she was advocating for women's rights. So I was, I was kind of dismantling that discourse to understand. So, you know, what kind of women's rights is she talking about? I mean, she's wearing this headscarf. She uh, covered head to toe, and all these three of these figures, the two candidates and the wife, they're all of the founders of the Islamic Republic, and now. They're in the reformist camp, not the fundamentalist camp, which, you know, is. And I'll I'll tell you why the reform uh, camp is very important in just a bit. So I I, I looked at that and I I realized the kind of Iran that they're advocating for is not really what many people wanted. And that was part of the Rwanda movement failed because the social actor, the the um, informed social actors that were on the ground after a while, they could understand that this is, um, they could kind of discern that this, uh, the, the, the discourse and realize this is not really going the way I want it to go. Because in every social movement, and I don't know how you know technical we can get here, but mm-hmm. there is a, a critical point. Um, in which the actors decide whether or not to continue uh, mobilizing, to continue with the protests, uh, despite the costs. And the cost in a country like Iran is oppression, it's uh, violence, it's, uh, you know, mass imprisonment. I'm sure you've seen it on TV. Mm -hmm. And when you say say cost, just to add um, for everyone that's listening, we're talking about the cost of... um, achieving some form of collective action or the cost of expressing uh, legitimate political dissent uh, publicly. Dissent, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the cost of even literally being on the street. Mm-hmm. Yep. And participating for protest in those or... protests. And those protests were completely legal. They were, um, they, they were, uh, they had... Uh, uh, permission from the Ministry uh, of uh, Interior uh, to protest. Um, and so uh, without going into too much detail, there is a, there's a critical de- uh, critical moment that happens in that movement. And your audiences might remember that was the moment that Neda Sultan, that, that uh, girl, got shot on the, the second or third day, if I remember. And her a, a picture and the uh, violence and the blood was all over the media, mm. all across the world. And when you look at the data, the days following that, even though smaller protests took place, but the numbers sharply declined. Mm. So it is at that point that protesters decide, I mean, they, they, can, they can tell the... Um, the manipulations, the, the distortions in the discourse of the leaders of the movement. And so this is, uh, obviously, I'm not suggesting this is the entire explanation why that movement failed. There are other issues too. But that was part of it. And they decided from now on, this is not worth it. I mean, I'm not I'm not go- going to get what I want 
anyways, mm-hmm. um, because what these leaders are promising me can't all be true. Mm. You know, they, they can they can understand social actors as all of you know all of us can subconsciously um, we can um, analyze and understand and critically go through the discourse and decide whether or not this dialogue or this discourse that I'm having with these leaders um, and what everything that I'm hearing is this oriented towards mutual understanding is it to my benefit is it uh, you know uh, do i have any interest in this Mm. Uh, or not and obviously the actors decided not and And at that point sorry go on oh i'm just wondering um are you saying that uh the social movement started to lose steam in in it did lose steam it definitely lost steam and even though Yes. And even though it went on for a few months after that, but it definitely lost steam and the government was able to, you know, basically wrap it up. um, And the millions of people were no longer on the street. There were like maybe thousands or hundreds um, at certain occasions. So the important consequence of that was, uh, and I, I defended my dissertation in 2015, and I, um, one of the uh, conclusions was that the reform movement in Iran is not a viable al- al- uh, alternative uh, for democracy. And why am I, um, uh, why am I uh, so intent on uh, reform? Because let's take a few steps back. Iran is generally, uh, in the West, Iran is framed and viewed through its through the lens of its relationship with the United States. Mm. You know, since the 79 revolution. Right. Which is a... That's... Would you say that's a pretty flawed perspective to, uh, ov- to like, simplify uh iran and everything that is happening there to its relations with the united states like that's pretty Ab- oversimplified it leaves a absolutely mm. and it's it's fascinating christopher because i i, I read a lot of really intelligent american european analysts uh talking about iran in terms of uh our, especially the, the, the Americans, our national interests. Mm. I mean, we're, we're talking about an entire nation of 88 million people. Iran is not homogeneous. There's, there are so many languages. There are so many um, ethnicities. There is not a singular Iran, mm-hmm. just like there is not a singular United States or Canada. Sure. But, but the diversity. Is, well, just to add to, but but there is a very rigid form of government that exists in Iran, like right compared to most Western governments, it's perceived to be very autocratic. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But what I'm trying to say is, 
Iran, for as long as Iran is seen and observed through that lens of its relationship with the United States, first of all, I mean, that relationship is, it was flawed even in the previous regime. It was not balanced. Let's not forget that the, the 1953 coup that the United States had staged in Iran um, essentially robbing the country of a uh, democratically oriented uh, regime supporting the Shah, okay. the, 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 previous, the previous king. So it, that relationship, even when it was, you know, in its best, um, best case scenario, it was very flawed and one-sided. So that was one of the reasons... Um, one of the most prominent slogans of the Iranian revolution was um, uh, freedom, independence, and Islamic Republic, as much as it pains me to say that. Um, independence, independence from the empire, the empire at that point being largely the United States. Mm. Um, so, but, however, in 1997, when, when this reform faction came, I, I might be throwing way too many dates and going, like, moving the timeline, so this builds context, let me know. Mm-hmm. But 97, since 97, when there was this reform movement and the, these, you know, the subsequent presidents that were um, of reformist... Um, of the reformist camp, they were more West friendly. They they had a more um, appealing demeanor, um, not as rigid as at least you know in their behavior, in their you know the external, in their dealings, um, personal dealings with with the world. They were not. Um, as rigid as, let's say, Ayatollah Khomeini or the, the current president. Um, so, and they, they wanted to have a, a more normalized relationship with the West. Um, and when I say the West, read um, what I mean is the United States. Sure. Um, so, naturally, they were embraced by... Europeans and, you know, even many of the Democrats in the United States as they were posed as an alternative for the current regime. But what many of us um, have been arguing since, you know, that that camp came to be in 1997, 96, 97, is that the reform movement is not really a democratic alternative, and in my book, I detail all of that, why they're not uh, democratically oriented. They are part and parcel of the current regime. They don't really want this regime to change that much. It's basically internal, uh, it's um, an internal fight mm. between the two factions of the government. They're not democratic-minded. Uh, they don't. Um, they still don't value the rights of minorities, of women, of ethnics. They're still quite centrist, and by centrist, I mean um, a geographical center. They they uh, 
um, they take uh, the the, um, the Islamic Republic is quite oriented towards taking extracting resources from the geographical periphery, the the uh, provinces that are in the periphery, for example, the oil provinces in the southwest where I am from, mm-hmm. or uh, in Azerbaijan, Kurdistan, and the north and northwest, or Baluchistan, it, it, the peripheral provinces that are rich in uh, natural resources, um, they end up um, as kind of a, like colonies mm-hmm. with their resources being extracted um, for the benefit of the central provinces, which are largely, but not obviously not completely, they're largely uh, Persian speaking. Sure. They're not, they, the other provinces have, uh, for example, Khuzestan it's, um, um, has the majority Arab population of Iran. It's not majority Arab, but it hosts. It, it house, houses majority Arab, or Kurdistan, or Azerbaijan, etc. So reform is not really, the reform camp doesn't really embrace that diversity. So without embracing that diversity, the reason for giving, you know, this elaborate, long story, without Embracing that diversity without embracing true democratic reforms, which are not possible on this, under this regime, mm. Iran is not going to be stable. Mm. Not the way the West wants, mm. anyways, and not the way we want in Iran, mm. us Iranians and those of us with Iranian heritage. Sure. And I think... Um... I think a lot of people in the West, especially on our continent, North America, that may not have a family background or lineage in uh, Iran or certain parts of the world, they, they don't understand how advanced the physical and digital means of repression are. They don't really mm-hmm. know what it feels like to live under a government that controls the uh, thinking and uh, uh, seeks to eliminate um, forms of political dissent. When we start to move this into the human rights perspective or when we start to talk about this from uh, uh, feminism or, uh, as you said, kind of like more leftist thinking that you've developed over the years, like what is there? Like, like what, what, is a, what is a feminist expression even look like from your perspective where maybe uh, the culture that you grew up in when you were young didn't, didn't necessarily support the ability of uh, uh, these ethnic or uh, 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 religious or, or uh, minority groups ability to express themselves. Like, you know, what does that sound like from your perspective when you think in the vein of like leftist politics, you know, feminism, uh, a more kind of democratic, like why, why is democracy even important? Why is it important to include more people in the political processes? Let me put it this way for you. Right now, Iran is 
one of only two countries. The second one would uh, be the Taliban in Afghanistan that has imposed a dress code, a hijab on women. Okay. So women are systematically reduced to second-class citizens. Under the law, a woman cannot typically petition for divorce. There are certain very specific um, rules under which she can, and even then it's very difficult. So uh, women don't have guardianship or um, legal authority over their own children, their fathers do. Married women can't leave the country without their husband's expressed permission, written official permission. Uh, You would not know that looking at the population of Iran. Which is, which is a um, very um, strong contrast between many in the population and the establishment. I say many in the population because there are also many others who support these rules and these you know, laws uh, tacitly or actively. Um, and I, I mean, I, we can get into that. Just the other day, um, two days ago, I think, I, I, let's, let's put it this way. Women are not allowed in sports stadiums watching male games. Two days ago, at the behest uh, of uh, FIFA, um, the authorities sold uh, – tickets to women, 2,000 tickets to women to go watch uh, Iran versus Lebanon, the final uh, qualifier game, I think, uh, for the World Cup uh, of soccer. Not only they didn't let them in, after legally selling them the tickets, Mm -hmm. they pepper sprayed them, beat them, and this is not the first time. And this is recently? This is two days ago. And FIFA knows about it. FIFA has known that Iran does not allow women in the stadiums. Yet, just about half an hour ago, I was watching uh, the Iranian legend Ali Day picking, you know, teams in the World Cup draw. FIFA does not do anything about it. If I and try to, so, oh, sorry, go ahead, Mara. Sure, sir. Sure, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, if I try to zoom into this, because sometimes I still think Westerners, people in America, some people, well, a lot of people in Canada, a lot of people on our continent don't actually understand what you're saying. Like they don't actually truly know what it means. They like mm-hmm. what we're talking about is that uh, women in Iran's uh, ability to express themselves uh, professionally, economically, uh, creatively uh, to express themselves outside of uh, uh, this definition of uh, hierarchy or like, like these definitions that uh, come from men or from the Islamic Republic, uh, that that ability is, uh, is non-existent, which means that in this context, we're talking about women as uh, 
as a vulnerable group uh, where these kind of uh, th these legal structures define what women's role in society is. So, uh, and so uh, the, the question of what women's role in society uh, is has been a big question through multiple waves of feminism. And we, we could think of, uh, you know, we can think of feminism in the U.S. or parts of Africa or Europe or even in the Middle East. And, and so uh, when we think of like uh, feminist thinking, it's like, uh, to me, it's like women taking control of uh, whatever autonomy is available to them, uh, for them to seize in that moment or on that platform or through that channel. And, and I guess like we're still asking questions uh, about women's role in society in the West. Um, and and you, some will say American women, some will say that there hasn't been progress. That's not true, though, by and large, but there still needs to be more progress. But if we took Canada and the U.S. and we compared it to the current uh, state in Iran, we're, we're talking like, uh, like basic autonomy doesn't exist for women. Like basic legal standing or legal protections don't exist. Like we're talking like like top down, the government and men in this government literally can control what women can do at any given moment. They barely even have uh, the legal right to, uh, you know, like you said, like if a woman births a child but doesn't have any custodial uh, protections um, that govern her interactions with that child, that, that seems trivial in America, right? But if we're in Iran, we're saying that the state or a man can seize a woman's ch uh, child. Women doesn't have uh, any legitimate mechanism or authority to, to defend herself from, from that or... Just in this simpler context, we have a global sports organization that sells tickets to an event like in Canada and uh, the United States. Obviously, all of us can walk in, we can buy a ticket. We're not breaking the law. But you're saying that just two days ago at a soccer game, Lebanon versus Iran, uh, these 2,000 women were denied entry and law enforcement pepper sprayed them. So, so, yes. so I, and so I just want to highlight this for people that we're talking about, like, I think it gets lost because people listen to a lot of NPR or they read text or maybe they watch a few videos, but we're talking about like egregious violations, like egregious uh, uh, structural barriers uh, for an individual to have some form of uh, uh, autonomy or the ability to express themselves. And I think there's a lot of people that take uh, feminist thought and they go hyperbolic with it and they like automatically try to take it to um, sex or gender, or they talk about abortion. We're not even like even close to those types of things. That's like the liberal argument. We're talking like the ability to enter a football stadium, right? Uh, but here, here's the Iranian conundrum, uh, Christopher. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's the problem. So this is why I started by saying there is not one Iran. There is not 
um, it, it's it's not a singular entity. Um, so, as a um, as a social scientist, I like to dissect and um, kind of stratify things and um, go um, layer by layer. So here, uh, here's a question for your audiences. We have one of the most autocratic, violent regimes in the world, mm-hmm. right? By, by all standards, by all international standards. Mm-hmm. The number of uh, executions, political prisoners. I mean, the, uh, the, the um, what's it called? The... Um, Gender, um, can't remember the the English translation. The gender um, equality, um, uh, the the number of gender equality, uh, the, the Iran's ranking in that in that uh, table is 150 out of 156 countries. This mm. this is the, the uh, ranking. The, I think it's 150 out of 156 countries. So we're all the way down there. Yet. Iran is also home to the one of the most thriving um, feminist movements in the Middle East. Okay. Yet, you we see many Iranian women as uh, seemingly liberated. They're you know educated. They uh, they don't have those. Um, they don't even half of them don't even. Uh, practice religion, they don't seem to be bothered by those or uh, be entangled in those uh, restrictive social uh, norms or uh, religious, um, you know, ideals. They're, they're more emancipated, liberated. Okay. That's, but that's a section, that's a cross-section of the society. Mm -hmm. There are others who are not. It really depends on um, their geographical location, obviously their class, um, their, their socioeconomic class, um, sometimes even um, uh, ethnicity, their access to education and all of that, obviously. Um, and so uh, women from the more um, larger uh, urban metropolitan cities are historically more um, in the past, I would say, yeah, about uh, 100 years in the last century or so, are, have more access to education. They're more liberated. They're, 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 it's, um, they're um, closer to the liberal understanding of, uh, the, the, of women that we have in the West, of, of women's rights, uh, I mean. However... The same men and the same families, you know, the, the, the girl's brother, let's say, they haven't evolved at the same rate. Mm. So you see, there is a huge gap. There's, there's a huge um, um, space that is only getting, it's, this gap is getting bigger and bigger between uh, men and women. Sometimes in, even in the same family. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm explaining it clearly, but 
So that woman can, that, you know, liberated, progressive woman uh, can get to get married to a man um, of similar social class, economic standing. And if they want to get a divorce, he has the law behind him. And half the time, he can easily say, I'm not going get to you, get, give you a divorce. Hmm. I'm not going to give you a divorce. You're going to stay here. You're, I'm not even going to let you go to school anymore. I'm not going to let you leave the country. But I have a girlfriend and the two of us are going to go on vacation wherever we want. Hmm. So what I'm trying to point to is that gigantic contradiction sure. between different factions in the society and between certain factions of the society and the government. So think about it. This vicious autocratic um, authoritarian regime could not have survived all these years, 43 years to date, actually, had it not been for the support of many. Hmm. So Iran is a country divided, if you ask me. Hmm. But there's also another point that, that there's another point of uh, complexity here. It's the way the West has kind of conceptualized Iran. Okay. There is that conception of Persia. Sure. The old ancient empire, you know, great, glorious nation, um, land of hospitality, this, that, and the other, great food, whatever. Um, and then there is the terrorists mm-hmm. that uh, have com- are committing all sorts of atrocities. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, we need to save their women. Let me tell you something. These women, they don't need saving. Hmm. What we need from the Western countries, th- their governments actually, is for them to make sure human rights are not um, trampled on every time they're about to make a deal with Iran, like Obama did in 2015. Uh, Yeah, it was 2013, sorry, with the JCPOA Joint uh, Comprehensive Plan of Action. Mm. Like he did, like Obama did in 2009, when he refused to support Iranian people in their uprising. Mm. Like Biden is now doing, and many Western countries are now doing, in this, you know, revival of the JCPOA that Trump canceled. Mm. Human rights has to be a part of any deal with Iran. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not suggesting that it's a perfect country or, you know, uh, everyone's liberated and somehow there is this notion that people are separated from their government. Not at all. What I'm trying to say, uh, actually, in the contrary, that it's, this is a very highly patriarchal country. Um, but things have changed over 
the years. The, things have changed drastically. Divorce rates are over 60%. Oh, wow. Whereas 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was unheard of. Sure. So there is a certain revolt from below that is going on. Mm-hmm. A lot of women are revolting against these oppressive rules, but their power is not, it, it's no match for the repressive machine of the Islamic Republic. Well, and I also think like if we, I think there's two ways to look at this. So from the Western perspective, uh, states, so for any Americans listening, the Iranian government is highly enfranchised. So it has lots of skills and capabilities built into it. All right. It's not the Taliban. Exactly. Right. It is a sophisticated. Exactly government apparatus it knows how to do think about it it lasted 43 years against all odds yeah and it's still here today and able to make negotiations Mm -hmm. on the global stage so one of the issues i'm seeing is like um you know we we can disagree with uh biden and trump foreign policy that's fine uh or uh obama or you know but even the sanctions that uh uh Trump put in place. Uh, I've been listening because, you know, I I look at the international political economy. I look at the way that capital flows um, through corporations, states, whatever. But like one of the things that I heard is that um, Iran started these proxy companies, which are basically like shell companies. And then they have like very advanced corporate structures on the other side of those shell companies. And uh this is one way that they're avoiding uh, sanctions and still taking in like some, I think somebody, I don't remember if it was Bloomberg or Brookings, like $80 billion are coming through these uh, proxy entities every year. So it's, it's, you know, so sanctions in a lot of ways, I think are becoming less uh, effective as these financial environments are becoming more advanced and distributed and governments like Iran or, I don't know, uh, not to make comparisons, but like uh, China or mm-hmm. Saudi or, you know, some would even argue Israel are, you know, coming up with more advanced ways of uh, of repressing people or uh, competing in uh, uh, whatever international policies they're trying to put forth. But, but then uh, the other way to look at um, this is like, like non-Western foreign policy. It's like, what are the like religious tensions in region and then also uh, within the government? And w- what are the limitations of um, these autocratic regimes to shed some of their legitimate conservatism and, and to see uh, liberation as not necessarily a Western value, but just something that a modern country should carry out in the 21st century, you know, what is the argument in the Middle East or in Iran to justify uh, more inclusive economic and political institutions from your perspective? Or like, what is um, the let barrier? Me, let, let me 
clarify um, a few things, actually. And you're, the question you're asking, by the way, a million-dollar question, and it's going to take a long time to tackle. Uh, but um, l- let me uh, first say this, and I'm very glad you brought this up. Um, in your formulation, we were talking about Trump versus Biden or Obama, um, either sanctions or uh, basically giving up human rights. And I'm, I'm by no means am I suggesting that Trump uh, should have canceled JCPOA or that what he did guaranteed any rights or anything. What I'm actually suggesting, and that's why I was bringing up the problem, the um, the issue with reformists, is we need a third way, because obviously what Obama was doing, it only worked halfway. It emboldened, emboldened Iran. It emboldened it in its uh, proxy wars in the region, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen, and the atrocities that, you know, the Quds force, um, the elite uh, IRGC force has been um, basically unleashing on people in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Palestine, in Syria, every, and, you know, everywhere Iran has proxy wars. And what Trump did put, it, it took away, it, he basically just canceled the, the deal without putting anything in place. I mean, these sanctions hurt everyday people more than they hurt the IRGC or you know, all these uh, different uh, government entities. But what I'm trying to say is, and we have to get out of this lens of reformist versus fun- fundamentalist. The fundamentalists being the bad guys, the, uh, you know, the, the terrorists, the, the framing wrong that way. Or the reforms, the pro-West, the good guys who are going to bring democracy to Iran, they're not going to be able to. No. They're not democratically oriented. We need to think about a third way out. We need to um, embolden and um, essentially um, empower grassroots initiatives um, and look at alternatives that are outside of this regime. This regime is not capable of um, getting itself out of the, uh, the, the, the mess, out of the crises, multitude of crises that it has, um, that it has caused over the years. And I'll tell you why uh, in a second. But in, by no means am I advocating for foreign intervention in Iran. When I say we need to empower people, I need we as intellectuals, as activists, as people who are um, who are interested in human rights and um, who are in that field. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I mean when I say we, I mean people. I, I, the, if the governments are going to do anything about it, is that we hope uh, faintly. Um, that they would take into account human rights when they make different deals and negotiations with Iran, because we know it's going to happen no matter what. But at least make sure you take those things. Make sure you put the same kind of pressure you're putting on Russia right now on Iran. I mean, if we can overnight kick Russia out of the Olympics and 
um, all sorts of sporting events, it could have been done to Iran a long, long, long time ago. Mm. So there are all sorts of um, mechanisms and tools that governments have that can put uh, on, you know, their adversaries to kind of behave. Um, I'm but not you, an expert in. I do think that. Um, I think the anti-U.S. sentiment is evolving in the way that it's expressed, and it's uh, evolving into different parts of the world in these various ways. But I always feel like um, the more intervention that the United States does in the Middle East, the you know, the more certain anti-Western movements can be justified. Also, like, um, I, I am not a scholar on any of these things. And I, I'm not in Middle Eastern studies, even though it is something that I pay very close attention to outside of the traditional political science classes that I take. But uh, how, what is like, I feel like when we talk about certain regions, uh, you know, discussions of like um, the various Islamist factions or terrorist factions come into play. Is, is there less types of terrorism or less types of uh, movements that are able to gain steam in, in Iran than maybe other parts of the region that are like anti-state in nature? Like is the Iranian government just stable enough to where it's not dealing with you know, things that might be going on in Sudan or not to make comparisons, but like Libya or, mm-hmm. you know, like, like, cause I, cause I think like all these Western ways of intervening, they create lots of hate around the globe, even though it's like, it's like people want the U S to intervene, but then they talk shit about the U S in Canada, in different parts of Saudi, in China. Like it's like, mm-hmm. it's like people want, uh, these things to happen from U.S. intervention, but then they also want U.S. hegemony, global hegemony, to 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 fall off. You know, a lot of people exactly. are making these arguments; it's declining. So, like, are there internal arguments in Iran about how to think about human rights without like Western intervention? Not to say that Western should cease or that it shouldn't exist, but but are there like internal dialogues happening in Iran? You know, absolutely. I mean, uh, let me reiterate again. Uh, many of us, most of us, are against military intervention, against direct intervention of any foreign country in, uh, in Iran or anywhere else. Really, um, I, I, I think Iranians are fully capable of handling their own faith if anything we want less intervention what we're asking them is not to provide this regime with all sorts of deadly weapons we're asking for example the austrian government not to provide them with all sorts of uh, spying equipment policing equipment Uh, we're asking germany not to provide these um security forces that beat people up on the streets every time they protest with um, with um, anti-riot equipment. Mm. We're 
asking them to let us handle our own faith. But to answer your previous question, let me uh, about whether or not Iran um, or the Islamic Republic of Iran's regime is in in a critical point that it might topple. In my view, it's this regime is a regime. It's a it's an unfinished business. Forty three years later, it's an unfinished business. It's still fighting its opposition forces, both within and without the country, um, vehemently. Uh, but the, a few things have happened over the years that uh, the support for the regime is increasingly, increasingly um, falling. For example, uh, the 2009 Green Movement that I told you about um, is is one of them. And um, what I was what I was mentioning is that one of the conclusions was in, in that book was that reform movement is not a democratic alternative. So at that point, what I predicted in 2015 was that the reform movement is politically dead. It has come to a political dead end. It can't go anywhere. So in 2018, three years later, in late 2017, early 2018, December, moving into January, there were a series of riots in Iran all across the nation. And, and again, in uh, November 2019, very similar riots uh, and you know revolts happened. But there were these riots, these uprisings were quite different than what happened in 2009 or the 79 revolution or the movements prior to that in the century. In that usually uh, mass uprisings and revolutions in Iran, and we've had two revolutions and two or three major mass uprisings, uh, one uh, in and around the nationalization of oil and the subsequent American coup, and then the 2009. Um, usually they're urban and they're centered around middle class demands, political demands of the middle class. The, the elite are usually from that segment of the society. But what happened in 2018, 2019 was that for the first time, this, these uprisings were scattered in the periphery, in the geographical and economic periphery, in the margins, in cities far, far away from geographic and from political centers of power, from cities I had never heard of. And even in urban, like big cities, big metropolitan cities, they were happening in the ghettos and the, in the um, margins of the cities, mm. not in the middle class. The, the, you know, in the middle class, I would talk to my family back home in the dead of the movement. And they're like, no, everything's fine. Nothing's happening here. Sure. But so, but why is that significant? Mm -hmm. The these the dispossessed, I call them the, the working work, unpaid workers, the, the dispossessed of the society are usually the ideological base of the Islamic Republic. 
historically that's where the, the base was, the support was. That's way, where they would recruit for their security forces and the uh, repression apparatus. Mm-hmm. If that is falling and the government, one after the other, they suppress them violently and with force. If that is falling, that support is falling. What is an ideological state without its base? Mm. That, think- that was that's they were far more violent mm. in 2018 and 2019 than they uh, were ever in the, in the prior uprisings. Well, I think couple that with, oh, sorry, I'll say this last thing, couple that with yeah. all the economic problems, the external pressure since Trump, um, and also the environmental crisis that is coming its way, and, the, and COVID. It's so fascinating. And we could talk about this for multiple days. And so I, we'll wrap up, but I think, too, another dynamic that people may forget about is that the autocratic regimes or authoritarian governments have uh, ways of, uh, you know, driving various forms of pro-state mobilization, uh, especially people that don't feel they have a lot to gain from uh, engaging in political dissent like the middle class you're mentioning. And so it can also, for people that don't realize this, it can also be hard to get the true sentiment because of uh, the amount of self-censorship that these various repressive tactics create. Um, Because again, the goal of repression is to make the barriers to dissenting with the political institutions uh, high enough to where there's just not a way to achieve any form of uh, collective action. Um, So, so, okay. Do you have like, any last thoughts? And then also, where is the best place to connect with you for people that may have uh, additional questions or uh, just want to uh, subscribe to your content? Sure. Um, what uh, I would like to leave you with one last thought, and that is there is no singular Iran. What NPR tells you is one aspect of Iran. There are far more uh, liberal forces than the uh, Nayak or, you know, uh, the people that NPR likes to interview. And sadly, they present them as the left. They're not really the left. Mm -hmm. They're the new, new liberals. Um, There is not a singular Iran. And we're fully capable of handling our own faith. What we need is solidarity with the rest of the world. As for my uh, content, I'm on Twitter at Maral K, M-A-R-A-L-K-A-Y. Um, uh, I also uh, wrote a book uh, based on my uh, first research on the Green Movement, the Iranian Green Movement of 2009, Reverberating Echoes of Resistance. 
Um, I sometimes write for Al Jazeera. My pieces are there. If you Google my name, I'm sure you come across them. But Twitter would be the best place um, to catch up. Perfect. And um, I'll I'll post uh, these links when I uh, uh, publish this recording. So it's it's been amazing to talk to you. Thank Moral. you so much. I hope much. we get to do a part two. There's so so many layers to this. So thank you. I was thank you so much um, for having me. I enjoyed the talk as well.